Hello you, welcome to this episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we'll be talking about Harriet the Spy with our great friend, the delightful Woody Sticks. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. First, though, I want to let you know that You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon or subscribes on Apple Plus uh, over in their, their premium podcast subscription service. Everyone who supports us in these places gets bonus episodes. We just had a bonus episode that was about grief and also featured an essay from our great friend Harmony Colangelo, who was uh, commenting upon the character Angela from Sleepaway Camp. Harmony is one of the hosts of This Ends at Prom, one of our very, very favorite people. We love her, and we're glad we got to (laughs) offer an episode that was equal parts about grief and sleepaway camp. (laughs) That's what we do. That's what we do here. I think that's why you come back, maybe. Our next bonus episode will be about uh, which fictional characters we relate to and why, and maybe what those relationships say about us and what they say about those characters. That was a listener suggestion for a topic. I'm very excited to finally cover that, finally get into it. Thank you everyone uh, for supporting us via these options because uh, You Are Good is made entirely by artists, writers, journalists. This is how we make our money and you help make that possible. And crowdfunding by way of Patreon, by way of Apple Plus, is how we make the vast majority of our money. So you are making it possible for artists and writers to make a living in 2022, and we appreciate that. You Are Good is also made possible with support from Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, please get in touch with the fine folks at Nag Factory. And finally, you can find in the show notes a playlist that accompanies this episode. We have playlists that accompany all of our episodes. Uh, they're songs that are inspired by the movie. They're songs that are inspired by our conversation about the movie. We find that you like them, so we keep making them. So uh, find that playlist in the show notes. But before we visit upon Harriet and the gang, I just need to let you know that Inked Gaming helped make this episode possible. They are a trusted one-stop shop for those who seek premium goods specifically crafted by gamers for gamers. We actually have an episode coming up with JV Hampton Van Zandt where we talk about tabletop gaming. So we know that this is the kind of thing that appeals to folks who are interested in this show and who uh, listen. We must have some tabletop gamers and gamers of all stripes and sorts. Uh, in our audience, don't we? Inked Gaming's growing collection of goods includes everything from premium playmats to mouse pads, all of which are designed to help you level up your gaming setup. Creative expression is one of their key values, and they show it by providing an entire collection of customizable gear that is waiting for your unique designs. You can put your own personal touch on their custom pieces and prepare to stand out or strike up a conversation with other gamers at the table. Uh, They are unique, too, because they share commissions with their artists, which is not always the case with services like these. Inkquality is the name of the game with Inked Gaming when it comes to creating premium goods. That's why they make sure not to sell or ship anything that they wouldn't be interested in using themselves. They, too, are gamers. So do you, my friend, have a big game night battle coming up? You know, you should stop by inkedgaming.com, stock up on some fresh supplies for your favorite games, 
They've been a friend and sponsor of ours for past shows as well. They've been going at it since 2011. We appreciate you, Inked Gaming. If you are interested in what they have to offer, there is a 10% off discount waiting for you at inkedgaming.com slash youaregood. Again, you are good listeners. Get 10% off by going to inkedgaming.com slash youaregood. Just go on over pick or personalize the gear that you need for your favorite game, use the promo code YOUARGOOD and you get that 10% off. Thank you so much, Inked Gaming. All right. Harriet the Spy, for those of you who are not in the know, is a 1996 American coming-of-age comedy film directed by Bronwyn Hughes in her feature film directorial debut and starring Michelle Trachenberg in her major film acting debut. It co-stars Rosie O'Donnell, J. Smith Cameron, Gregory Smith, and Vanessa Lee Chester. It's based on the 1964 novel of the same name by Louise Fitzhugh. The film follows a sixth grade student who aspires to become a writer and a spy. Uh, Thank you to the fine uh, crowdsource editors at Wikipedia for putting that together for me. Uh, this is a fun episode. We had been trying to get together with Woody to make an episode together for well over a year. And just, it was one of those things where we are all busy people with busy schedules and it's hard enough to get, uh, uh, one person to make a show, let alone get three people on the same place and same schedule to make an episode. (laughs) I'm so happy this finally happened. It is a delight. Woody is wonderful. This conversation is big fun. All right, it's time. Let's go. Uh, let's go spy by writing in our composition notebook. <laughs> Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. I have no particular quote that strikes me in this movie. I'm curious if any strikes you, but I were you taken by how much they talk about suicide and murder for teenagers? For 11-year-olds? Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so based on that alone, if you're not looking at the title, you know we're talking about Harriet the Spy. <laughs> well, we could be talking about a Bad News Bears sequel, but yes. That's true. We, we're not today yet. Although I do want to do that one where they go to Japan. I do too. That would be great. I bet it's not at all problematic. Okay, so but why are we watching this movie? Well, uh, aside from the fact that it's beloved by many and people ask us to cover it on a regular basis, uh, this was asked for by request. Special guest, reveal yourself and tell us why you brought us Harriet the Spy. It's me, Woody Sticks. Yay! Hello! Hello! Uh, Coming to you live from my closet. First time Uh, I've been in a closet in a very long time. (laughs) We're glad that you could go back in just to join us. It's the only reason to be in there. That's right. That's right. I'll go anywhere for both of you. Oh, that's so kind. Mm, my pleasure. I Harry the Spy is, is a cornerstone movie for me. It's like a DNA formative film for me. And it's one of the gayest movies of all time, arguably, <laughs> in its text, in its subtext. And I'm like a gay porn historian, and I still think Harry the Spy is one of the gayest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful setup. So let's have Sarah explain to us what happens in this movie, what this movie is. Then we'll just talk about where all the gay parts are. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. Sounds good to me. 
Sarah, take us away. So I have a very specific memory. Like there are a few movies that I remember seeing in the theater as a kid. And I remember my mom taking me to Lloyd Center where Tanya Harding first skated to see this movie. And then I remember... Alex, this is going to slot in next to every other story you know about me as a child. <laughs> I loved the movie. And then after we saw it, I wanted to read the book. And so we went to probably Barnes and Nobles and they didn't have an edition that wasn't a movie tie-in version. And oh, I was like, no, no I refuse no. to be seen reading a book with a movie tie-in cover. I cannot live it down. Yeah, totally. Can't do it. Sarah, I feel that is representative of you, but that's a place where our younger selves intersect, for sure. Okay, I thought this was going to be one of those, like, ah, that kid eats apples for fun kind of a thing. No, I felt I felt the same. <laughs> I felt like even before I knew, like, punk snobbery, DIY, etc., I was like, there's no way I would read the book that has, like, imagery from the movie on it. No way. Yeah. That reveals you as a simp. I was the kid... <laughs> I was also eating apples for fun and carrying, like, Dostoyevsky, <laughs> right? Like, yep. too serious for my own good. Inspired by the film. You just need to be recognized as an old soul so that an adult man will take you on a gambling trip across America and <laughs> be mean to you when he won a competitive Oscar. I don't know who I'm talking about. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> an adultish child. <laughs> I have a real vendetta against Ryan O'Neill, you guys. Okay, Harriet the Spy. I have interrupted myself. Harriet the Spy <laughs> is a Michelle Trachtenberg-led 1996 film. It's an adaptation of a book that came out in, I want to say, the 60s. And one thing that's clear right off the bat about this movie is that it's being made at kind of the end of the period of like childhood and early adolescence as a free space when you can wander around a large city surveilling adults. And it feels kind of admirably out of time. Like these kids are using a lot of typewriters. And so Harriet lives in a city that when I was a kid, I guess, assumed was New York City because it had big buildings and wasn't too sunny. But they filmed this in Toronto and Florida. And I'm yeah. really curious about where the Florida parts are. <laughs> I like rarely wait to see where the filming happened. But I did in this because I very same as I was like, where is this? Pretty sure we're in New York, but we're not yeah. at all. It also is one of those movies that feels timeless because of the lack of like represented technologies. Like the technology is a notebook. Yeah. So that multiplied by the you know, weird, ambiguous geography, it creates a sort of like a little magical realm, which is mm -hmm. which is nice. Yeah, it's like a little world out of time, which is really lovely. And so we learn that Harriet is starting the sixth grade. She goes to school with her friend's sport and Janie. Janie's a budding young scientist and sport is a parentified child who takes care of his dad, who's a starving artist. The thing she loves best is to make her rounds around her neighborhood and spy on all these adults. Like there's the man who has too many cats and there's the Eartha Kit lady. <laughs> <laughs> and she writes everything down in her notebook. And the two main, I think, important events that happen in this movie are first, she has her nanny, old golly, except Michelle Trachtenberg pronounces the word golly, gully. So my headcanon is that her name is Fern Gully, first name Fern, last name Gully. Yes. Gully is Harriet's nanny who's really like the person she's closest to because her parents are always going to fancy parties. Her parents like 
impetuously fire Golly after she takes Harriet out to see a Greta Garbo movie with the delivery guy for the greengrocers who she's been dating. And Golly's like, yep, I think it's time for me to go. Harriet's 11. Okay, bye. Goodbye forever. (laughs) And stacking on top of just the ambiguity of time and space, the delivery man's accent is... Placeless. Hard to nail down. (laughs) I was like, is this like a really Canadian accent? Like so Canadian that it becomes like Scottish almost, one of those. And then the second major event is that during a game of bumper tag, Harriet's notebook falls to the ground and she wrote private on it, which she shouldn't have done. She should have written like geometry on that, Harriet. (laughs) That's my note. And then Marion... Hawthorne, who's such a kind of wonderful kind of 60s throwback, mean, popular girl, finds it and reads everything that Harriet has written to her peers. And I feel like this is an early educational moment for me because, like, she's reading stuff Harriet has written and we've seen her write, but we know that she's reading it out of the context in which we saw it get written down. And you're like, wow, when you put it that way and read it in that tone... Something that seemed like a reasonable thing to say at the time can be extremely hurtful and ruin someone's life. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the movie is about Harriet basically having to figure out how to dig herself out of that hole. And I did read the book eventually after I got a copy without a movie tie-in cover. And the only thing I really remember is that Harriet has like a rich friend whose parents are even fancier than hers and who became the subject of a spinoff book. And B, that in the movie, Golly comes back to help her figure things out. And in the book, she's just fucking on her own because mid-century child life was very rough. And she redeems herself. Yeah, she just writes a letter that says, you'll figure it out. And she does. (laughs) And it's like, sometimes you really need a hug from Rosie O'Donnell, though. I'm glad we (laughs) know that in the 90s. It's kind of like the Catch Me If You Can ending, where she's taking her, like, desire to spy on people and know everything and learn everything and write everything down and then becomes a journalist and everyone forgives her. The end. Beautiful. Beautifully done. Woody, just tell us about your background with the movie. Tell us about why when presented an opportunity to talk about this movie for an hour, an hour and a half, this is the one that you chose. Like, tell us about this. I also saw this movie in the theater. My parents, you know, were constantly like checking, clocking in, clocking out uh, at different times. Like Harriet's parents. Like Harriet's parents. (laughs) Yeah, that really resonated. But definitely like saw it in the theater. And then famously, the VHS copy of this is orange. Mm. And I just wore grooves because this was Nickelodeon's first feature film. Yes. You know, that moment where you like lace up your skates and you hit the ice and you really want to show off a little bit. Yeah. I just remember uh, feeling really catered to in when seeing Mm. this movie as a kid and then kind of like, Rewatching groups into this and like, you know, the other formative DNA movie is Newsies for me. Mm-hmm. And both of them feel related in that regard with with their attention paid to kids and like treating kids like real people. Mm. And that also, you know, both of you will have to stop me from doing like a page to screen because I recently reread the book. Uh, which is 300 pages. Wow. It was 1964. Like, what else were kids doing? Yeah. They're like, what are you going to watch? I dream a genie. Read a book. Right. (laughs) Read this, like, bleak, morally uh, ambiguous story about a gay, prepubescent girl being captured by her friends. 
And she did. And so uh, between that and then there's this really beautiful biography of the author who's like a really complicated, Mm. amazing woman who was uh, like a radical lesbian in beatnik circles in the 50s and 60s. Hell yeah. Snaps. Snaps for the beatnik lesbians. (laughs) Honestly, and this this movie is a love letter to lesbians and their place in our lives and their place in our childhoods. and, And, you know, I carried that into my adulthood, really, like only having meaningful relationships with lesbians now. It feels like, you know, again, a movie that takes kids seriously, a movie that takes work seriously art seriously Mm. treats art as work and like there's some problematic subtext to that but also like I think a really meaningful treatment of like the things you're passionate about and then you know recently I've kind of always uh, my friends all make fun of me uh for being the one to project all of my gay feelings onto anything around me you know just a fire hydrant (laughs) overflowing queer theory onto everything at all times um Mostly because it's true. But in this movie, I had like, I had, I think it created this sense in me that I was a spy, that I was a detective, that I was like mm-hmm. identifying all these little queer texts and subtext and, and homages in the film. And then as an adult was like, oh, I just, I really like, I can see all these like queer moments in this movie. And then revisiting the author and being like, no, that's the text. That's the sub, that's like <laughs> the subtext is overtly like a, gay story people I- miss the text as well yeah. yeah i mean that's incredible that you say all that because i find one of the things that we find is like a you know kind of like a constant piece of dialogue with audience is you the show have all these uh queer guests that come on the show you talk about stuff but like rarely if ever do you talk about queer text and it's not that there's an objection to that like largely it's about like sort of the guest bringing a title to us and that's sort of how we end up on stuff and we don't want to be like you're queer bring a queer text because that's weird but also for me like I only grew up on subtext. I only was able to see <laughs> elements of life and experience through subtext ever. And like, I like, I was watching this movie. Wonder, I didn't watch this movie when it originally came out, but I was wondering why I felt like such fond, loving feelings for Rosie O'Donnell as like a parent-like character. And it's because I grew up in the '90s, and Rosie O'Donnell's <laughs> queer message to kids was almost 100% subtextual because that's all she was allowed to do. Well, she came out in 2002 on television and when everybody had a reaction to it, she was like, I like honestly didn't think I needed to come out. Right. <laughs> right? Like, right, right, right. Why do we even need to? I didn't everybody know already. <laughs> and I just that also really resonates with me as an individual. Right. And I think you see it in the film. But like, I don't know. I never came out. I was, first of all, pulled out and second of all, always out. So that really <laughs> hit me as well to be like, I don't know. There's, it's not I relish that this movie is not like a contemporary like coming out movie mm-hmm. either or like love mm-hmm. yourself girl girl write in your notebook you know, like, it that's not really the outcome either it's like i don't know it's gonna be hard you know like there's yeah. the heart of the film and i don't want to like jump ahead to it but like is that when gully comes back which i think is a really smart screenwriting tool but when they bring gully back and they're like having that conversation yeah. on the bed like that is the core of the whole film where you know you have to do two things, right? And you're not going to like either one of them. You have to apologize and you have to lie. That's adulthood. <laughs> That's adulthood. That is treating ch- a child like a person mm-hmm. and giving them practical, yeah. loving tools, you know? And people in my life didn't always do that for me as a kid. But, like, a lot of them tried to, anyway, to be like, here's a tool. Take, pick it up. But that idea that, like, the text is you're an individual. That makes people uncomfortable. And it's going to your whole life. 
And there's not this, I love in that exchange that this like wise woman who is like overtly lesbianic and like whatever kind of weird thing they're trying to do with this, this grocer romance, I think is just to like cool people down. Do you think it's one of those like Audrey and Seymour like couple with intense queer vibes kind of a thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) He's so Canadian that he just he transcended gender. There's like a level of Canadianness. That's right. He's got every accent. He's got every sexuality. That's why he's a bicycle delivery guy. Right. Well, I love that in the film they took in the book she leaves to marry him. And they moved to Montreal. Oh. Which is so weird and so contrary to the text. Montreal is the gayest city you can move to <laughs> after getting married. I agree. <laughs> Just disappears. Well, and, you know, to that point, Harriet's like, where's Montreal? And Gully says, you know where Montreal is. And I, that's another, like, that's the text, right? It's like, yeah. what's, what's, adult, what's gay adulthood like? And she's like, you know what it is. So yeah, I don't know. I just, I love, I love that this movie is like, there is no solution. The only thing we can do is like, you know, get better at loving ourselves and loving each other Mm -hmm. and like not loving ourselves for the sake of it, but like loving ourselves because that's how we survive. You know, I just, this movie is so pragmatic and that's lesbianism in a nutshell. Um, (laughs) I, I don't speak for lesbians or their experience, but in my life. When I'm at the end of the rope, I do just need like one of the lesbians in my life to come talk about it for about 45 minutes. And then I'm like, okay, all right, I'll do that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I love that to spy is to be a writer. Yeah. And that's yeah. the other whole, like, so I feel like this movie or the book or both set up a lot of people either to understand their existence and queerness better from like a coming of age standpoint, or at least have something speak to it before the words were there or whatever. And also this movie, I feel like was what enabled a lot of people to envision themselves as writers because they didn't know that their compulsion, because like, I feel like Harriet has a compulsion Mm -hmm. to observe and to experience things through the process of this notebook as she has to explain to her father, who's a fucking comedy writer. You'd imagine that he would understand this. And, you know, Harriet the writer, I feel like, is a harder sell than Harriet the spy. And so there's this whole, like, covert thing where, you know, Harriet the spy sounds so cool and you get in there and then realize that it's just explaining you functionally how to be a writer. (laughs) Do you think that I should get business cards that say Sarah the spy? Is that what you're telling me? We're ordering them right after this call because okay. you need those. <laughs> <laughs> embroider your yellow raincoat. Oh, okay. uh, oh my god, that raincoat! Okay, that raincoat. so like as a another thing, like for me, seeing this movie as an eight-year-old and watching Michelle Trachtenberg as like a ten or eleven-year-old, which like when you're a kid, the like kids a couple years older than you are always like so iconic Mm -hmm. I was able to just fully reconnect back with the way I felt looking at her when I first saw this movie where it's just like this is the coolest just the coolest person ever Mm -hmm. and I still feel that way and I love that she's a fucking mess yeah there's like nothing about her that doesn't take some untangling or you going like she's gonna 
be able to figure this out a little bit. Or like some of her thoughts are still aren't fully her own. Like her criticism of her friend's sport comes directly from her dad. Mm-hmm. Her criticism of sports father being, you know, a struggling artist. Starving artist, Alex. That's starving artist. Why doesn't he get a real job? <laughs> also, like, why doesn't he get a real job? He has a child. <laughs> that is worth a conversation. But yeah, the um, antagonization of this girl who's developed earlier than other people like that can't possibly be Harriet's issue. She's like, she thinks she's so cool because she has boobs. And they like at some point put her bra on display like there's Harriet's a fucking mess. Mm -hmm. And we see her go to therapy and like we see that part of her mess comes from neglect from her parents and this abrupt change to her household. All of that is extremely relatable. And they're never like you're off the hook because you're a mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're like, let's try to figure it out a little bit. Oh, she's a journalist. She's like, now she just gets to like make her mess her career for her whole yeah. life. That's the dream. Yeah. Now she cheats on her partner with like a Martin Shirecki. Like that's what happens to journalists. Most of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Shirecki. Oh, it's incredibly as I believe how that's pronounced. I, who am I think Shrekki? That's like a kid actor. Whatever. I don't matter. know. You're thinking of Shrek. Yes, You're I am thinking of, of Shrek. Lipnicky. Yep. I thinking of him too. Yeah. I also love how much this movie loves newspaper as a medium. You know, it's like really yes. venerates this idea. Like that's timeless and old fashioned in a way that I crave. But they, you know, even in that, she doesn't apologize in the newspaper, which is really notable. And actually, in the book, she doesn't even apologize to Jamie and Sport. I think they put it in the movie, which again, I think is like a really wise move for like, you know, 90s kids. But in the newspaper, she just says like a retraction is when you take something back and I want to take something back. And like, that's notably not an apology. And I love that. That sense of like, actually, you can think these like really ferocious things about the people in your life and like thinking the ferocious thing is not the problem. It's like how you relate to other people based on that information. Yeah, beautiful. Everybody knows that she's like constantly writing notes about everything around her. She's very overt about mm-hmm. that the whole film, mm-hmm. right? Everybody sees her writing all the time. She tells her best friend that like, I'm writing down everything. I want to know everything. I'm writing down everything. So it's not a secret what she's doing. The point that you made, Sarah, is that like, it's taken out of context. It's read out of context. Mm. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's read, her raw material is read and like, God knows if anybody read my raw material, like yeah. they'd have all kinds of feelings about that, you know? And even my polished material gets me in trouble. Like as it should. But like <laughs> I think like the gay subtext to me, especially as a gay man, she is sharp. She remains sharp, start, you know, beginning, middle, and end. She's very sharp. But she gains power by being mean. And she gets hmm. to this point where she is ostracized from everyone around her especially her like gay coded trio of friends and when she is put off by herself when she is isolated she becomes mean to gain power and it works Mm. like she she gets all that power but she is so mean and therefore left totally alone and it takes like you know the intervention of her parents this this seeing a psychologist gully coming back like this like magical older force in her life to remind her that like you know, as Gully says, friends are one of life's great blessings, like hold on to them. And she learns through that to like temper her meanness, but not lose her sharpness. You know, she remains really Mm -hmm. sharp. And I think that that is like something that gay men specifically and gay people more broadly, like really struggle with all the time. And like, 
that is something I see as like, you know, I'm professionally gay um, and swim in gay circles, produce gay events. And like, that's why you do the gay ice shows, but not the gay Olympics, because you've lost your amateur status. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Oh, I could only hope. I hope somebody hits me with a giant dildo. Starts on ice. <laughs> Takes me out of the running. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, gay men still struggle with this and all people, I think, but mm-hmm. gay men and women. I wish I came into the the lesson that we just spoke to way earlier than I did, which was I always confused my approach to that strength, which was like cutting observational wit mm-hmm. as the strength itself. Yeah. Mm, Jesus. I thought that the fallout was as important as the observation, you know, and it took me a very, 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 very long time. And I still slip into it because it gets me high. Like I was when I was 11. Yeah. I wasn't able to untangle. I remember the first time that I was called on that specifically was by an English teacher I became friends with who was like. Me too by an English teacher. Really? Yeah. She was like, Sarah, you're a real bitch. She didn't put it that way. Yeah. Mine mine, basic, mine was like, you're a real fucking asshole sometimes. And I think <laughs> that like you came upon it because you know, essentially she said some version of what I just said. I wish more people told me, but I was certainly not ready to uh, take it into my being. Yeah. I was like, it's not my fault. Everyone's a moron and we have to read Harrison <laughs> Keeler's stupid poem. Anthology. I mean, I was right about that one. Yes. I mean, both of you, I, I think I know the answer to this, but were both of you like uh, accused and or held accountable as children for being mouthy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that word specifically has and followed you? me. And you, um, by chance. Sharp. Mouthy, lippy, smart aleck, cheeky, like all these like all, all these face parts that you're apparently not yes. supposed to use. <laughs> look at us now. <laughs> we're all lips. All three of us. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, much like uh, most of you, I'm sure grew up in a Puritan cult, which <laughs> was, had its own complications and mm-hmm. was confusingly like still had ties to outside to like the secular world, which was not the reality of most of my peers. You know, so I like mm-hmm. went to this wacky school, this spooky, spooky school for 13 years, from kindergarten through 12th grade. I like went to the church that sponsored it. And like all of our social time was spent around the church. But then my mom worked in a hospital. She worked in the real world. And so like, I still had a lot of like secular people around me. I had like friends who didn't go to church at all. I had, uh, you know, like my family historically is Jewish, but I wasn't raised Jewish. So I had Jewish friends and like all of this in Jersey, you know, so I had this like definitely like Northeastern sensibility and like that set me up constantly to be at odds with my caregivers, right? Like I was like very mouthy, A, because like I'm prone to that, but B, because I was like, realized that there was like a world outside, you know? And I was like, I don't, Mm. I don't know about this. And not all the time. And like that increased like past puberty, right? Like I was a true believer for quite some time there. And then Mm -hmm. starting in high school is when I started getting really like combative and held to unfair standards for that. And like, I think something this movie doesn't reflect in my personal experience was that like I was teased a lot as a kid, not for being gay. Like I was teased because I was annoying and I am still like largely annoying. I just have a better sense of humor about it. But like (laughs) I was fine with my peers. My peers were fine with me. It was teachers. It was adults Mm. that were Mm. my biggest obstacle. And like 
very like stated obstacles, right? I started conversion therapy Mm -hmm. when I was 11, which is also like a thing that Mm -hmm. I think this movie really like reflects back to me, this pathologizing Mm -hmm. of how people are and how kids are specifically. And when she goes to see that shrink, you know, I was going to see like weird laying on of hands, like Bible counselors to talk to me about my Mm -hmm. masturbation fantasies. Uh, Like my nemeses were adults. Mm -hmm. There's like a coding of that in this movie too, where like, she remains the same, but like she gets her friends back, you know, and then it doesn't really yeah. matter what the rest of the people think about her because like her friends are back. One of the things I was refreshed by in watching this movie is like it modeled stuff I never really saw. Meaning, I mean, I'm saying this now as someone who's watching it in retrospect, but like meaning her mom comes in is like kind of like doesn't fully own it, but is like we fucked up. Like, here's your journal back. Mm-hmm. She talks to the therapist and the therapist, like she thinks it's going to probably be like this coercive thing. And they it's actually like strangely not weird for a mid 90s therapist scene in a movie. Yeah. He's got a really big jack, though. Yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> so that was a many. huge that was a big thing was like oversized shit was a huge I don't know why that was the case for like kids therapist offices or just in the 90s or like <laughs> 90s quirk stuff was big right yeah that's true and then her teacher hears her plea to finally rightfully separate the powers of being the executive of the class and the head of the press like <laughs> there's really there's interestingly give on the part of adults that it took me a very, very Mm -hmm. long time to experience myself. And I don't know if that was supposed to be aspirational or if, or Mm -hmm. what, but like, did you, did you see that with your adult experiences and go like, what the fuck's going on in here? Yeah, it was absolutely, (laughs) it was fantastical thinking, right? Like, and I think it was for me then and it is for me now to be like, oh, look at all these adults, like sincerely doing their best. (laughs) <laughs> and like that was yeah. not my childhood experience you know or like eh, maybe maybe actually they were doing their best that there were it, just the outcomes were not mm. as positive right like sure I too share that perspective that like most people in most settings are really trying their best and mm. in my case like that really didn't work out often right um, for me as a kid and you know for a lot of us but yeah, this movie is aspirational in that regard and really like all the adults are safe every adult is safe mm. Yeah. And I feel like the way that adults are like taught to try around children, like I feel like they often try too hard in the wrong direction. Like I was a kid who was like raised very hard in the wrong direction. And it was like my parents are trying so hard and honestly, they could try less hard and then they would be less frustrated with how little I'm able to like reward their attempts to get me to be able to use my brain like other children, for example. Um, The scene with Harriet and her mom, which Alex, you just mentioned, like, I love that her mom is basically like, I guess don't like I'm trying and I'm listening, but like, I don't really understand you. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of the part at the end of Matilda, which is also a movie edition, because obviously you can't directly adapt a rolled doll book exactly as it's written for children because you know it would be illegal but (laughs) (laughs) but like the part in Matilda when Rhea Perlman is like I never understood you Matilda not one bit you know and it's just like this little moment of clarity I remember when I was a mouthy kid the way that adults and teachers would respond to me. I think I kind of suspected at the time what was going on and now as an adult I like know that it was true Where, like, if you're an adult and you're a teacher or a parent and you're just, like, trying to get through your fucking day and you have this kid whose, like, brain is able to work 
objectively faster than yours and who's yes. like throwing all this very energetic smoke at you, you're just like, shut the fuck up. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 Sarah, like a lot of kids and some kids more than others, like carry that with a less of a varnish on it. And so mm. when a kid holds a grown up accountable to a set of ideals or a set of principles, like it's not yet tethered by the, um, act of adulting in the act of aging and like the way your brain calms down over time. Mm. And that is scary. That's scary. You know, like I work with kids a lot and, and see them kind of like do that thing of like, you said this and you're doing this. Right. And like one response is to be like, shut the fuck up. And then the other response mm-hmm. is like, Ooh, you're right. And usually adults have like kind of both of those responses to varying degrees of success. Yeah. And one response is to be really condescending. And like, I still like nothing rankles me more, I think, probably on a gut level than that, like, kind of like syrupy, like Annie Wilkes and misery kind of like working with one children like, well, I think that we should do that activity later. It's like, oh, my God, the Mm -hmm. the slap-o-matic 3000 just wakes up inside (laughs) of me. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, linguistically, that's called motherese. It's like a whole thing. Oh, Oh, no. You're trying to, like, appeal to something, like, very innate in somebody's ability to listen to you or to condescend to you. It's like nails on a chalkboard to me. Yeah. I feel like all of us maybe relate to this in different ways, too. Like, the sense of still being condescended to as, like, a fully formed adult and as, like, a professional Mm -hmm. who's worked in theater my whole life, like, since I was a kid, I still get talked down to. I still get disregarded because of you know a a whole lot of things and part of it is like femininity inside of me right like we hate women so much that we look for anything that even looks like women which is like you know ostensibly like a lisping gay man and we're like knock that shit out you know we see that in sport Mm -hmm. we see i think like the biggest betrayal in the movie is you know she's she's on this spate of meanness but really i think the meanest thing and i think the movie knows it too which is why they put it last in the montage Mm -hmm. is when harriet puts up the picture of sport in in like a private moment right like sport feminizing himself like camping it up with her when he's like cleaning Mm -hmm. his house you know and she like puts up this photo that's that is mocking his masculinity and like he watches her do it and she like pushes the tape in which is another like sensory moment of of Mm -hmm. joy but like that's the biggest betrayal you sold me out i remember my friend kyle day why not full name who's a very lovely person all around. What's his zip code? <laughs> his zip code used to be 04020, but I don't know what it is now. He's a designer now. He's fantastic in many, many ways. But he, when we were 10, so my father, 25 years older than my mother, by the time I was like 10, had retired and was living at home and was essentially like the caretaker of the household. My mom worked job in town. And I remember my friend Kyle realizing that that meant that my father did laundry mm. and just was vicious about it. Well, my dad never worked when I was a kid and he also never did laundry. So maybe Kyle would be happy with that. Never did a damn thing. So Kyle, you could go fuck yourself. (laughs) But I remember like I shut him down very efficiently and bitchily. And then my mother who overheard the conversation turned around and like inappropriately like looked him in the soul and said something I'm pretty sure like cutting or terrible to him. And it was great. Your mother who like ran at a a man about to attack his girlfriend with like what? With a a, rock. A rock. That's right. She was going to smash his skull. (laughs) So yeah, I, I, 
I had totally forgotten about that weird, you know, hidden core memory until I saw that poster that she put up of poor sport. And I was like, oh, what a friggin' bummer. I mean, Alex, that makes me think of like a story that really comes to me when I watch this movie is like the when I was experimenting with like that meanness versus sharpness, you know, and like mm-hmm. when I was 11 in school, these like boys who were like not even they were just teasing me, not even about my affect. They were just like teasing me, uh, you know, like kids are want to do. And I actually think that was fine. And I would like cry to my mom and be like, I just, they're just like, they won't leave me alone. Like they're just on my nerves. And she was like, here's what you do. And so she and I, and we were invariably like really tight and then really distant kind of, we had this complicated thing going on. Um, but she and I crafted this plan to call him the initials of a mean name and never tell him what it stood for. (laughs) That's amazing. And it's psychological warfare. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. And so I went into school the next day, and I'll name him too. Stanley Zabritsky was getting on my last nerve, and I was like, (laughs) you know what, Stanley? You're an FRF. (laughs) (laughs) And for weeks, I called him that until I made him cry during class. In class, oh I would like, God. I was writing it on notes. I was calling it to him on the playground. Like I wow. broke him. I fully broke him. Oh my him. God. And then I got yeah. called in to the, the headmaster, you know, and my mom was brought in and I was like, my mom helped me craft this plan. And she sold me out so fucking hard. She threw me under that bus. She was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Holy shit. <gasps> my mom sold me out so hard. And that was like her habit. Did you ever talk about it? Yes. Did it ever come up? She doesn't remember. She doesn't remember. <laughs> Everybody, my family just has like all kinds of mental illnesses galloping through at any given moment, you know? So fact, fact is not something that really um, sticks in my house. We're not, we're not too concerned with um, reality. Uh, And so, yeah, she she still to this day is like, I don't know what you're talking about. But I did this, I did the Harriet the Spy thing, which was like, I'm sorry that you felt bad about what I said. Oh my God. Which is a shitty apology to give as an adult, but I think was totally appropriate in the scene, in the setting. And I never told him what it means. Sorry, Mm -hmm. Stan. Never told him. We'll never tell him. Nice. He's going to die not knowing. What's it mean? Are you going to tell us? No, taking it to my grave. That's amazing. That's how it maintains its power. That's right. It also, I think that like adults generally don't tend to remember a lot of stuff that kids remember just because, like, mm-hmm. you know, for like a lot of reasons, but I think partly because when you're a kid, like time moves incredibly slowly. Like when I was eight years old, that was like five years of my life, worth of my life today, basically. And for my parents, yeah. it all happened in like 20 seconds. Right. These massive injustices that you like suffer as a child that shape your entire personality. I feel like there's like decent odds that the adults responsible for them just like forget them by Tuesday. <laughs> but that also has to do with context. Like that has to do with like your feeling of like what the sixth grade feels like. Mm-hmm. You've only been in five other grades. <laughs> you know I mean? So it feels gigantic. I've been through the equivalent of 35 grades to this point. So like at this point, I, I lose a grade here and I lose a grade there. But you're as a kid, you're just like every moment of this year of this experience of my time in this school of like my experience in this friendship of my passion for spying like whatever is so big right well and like that's the insidious thing about microaggressions and macroaggressions right like whether it's about your gender whether it's about your sexual identity whether it's about your intelligence whether it's about your race or your ability or whatever the more in your life you experience bullshit from people like hope 
hopefully in some ways and kind of tragically in others, like you build up a callus against it. Right. And so mm-hmm. when you as a kid, you're still so open and like those experiences of aggression are like, you have much less of them and your skin is much thinner because of it. And so like, mm-hmm. you know, now I'm very accustomed to, to the ways in which I'm undermined. Right. And like, I wasn't then I wasn't at 10. Hmm. And even then I was like more accustomed to it because of my like chaotic, shitty, abusive at times home life than my Hmm. peers were. Right. And so like, I also had that constant sense of like being an adultish child, you know, being a kid that was like an an old soul kid. And this kid that was like, had seen too much, done too much, heard too much to like really have a lot of patience for my peers too, right? Like, I don't know if this was true for both of you, but like, I mm-hmm. always had friends that were several years older than me. And still, oh, yeah. still that's true. You know, like my, my best relationships mm-hmm. are with people in some ways, small gaps and in some ways, you know, like one of my best gay friends is 90 years old. And like, mm-hmm. that is amazing to me. And like, I'm always reaching for that. Like I always round my age up as a person, right? Like, and so, like, I just, mm. I, I found as a kid, too, like, that to be really insufferable. Like, a kid around me to, like, be, you know, crying some about something like spilt milk or whatever. Right. You know, in that, like, looking for, like, the older person thing, at least in my experience, and very, sim- I mean, I would say, like, starting from, like, 11 on, my my core friend group was always substantially older. Mm. You know, and I wonder how much there's, like, kind of a parasitic relationship between these mm. two things. Because in your head, you're like, I just want to be seen for what I am and as intelligent as I am and as like reaching as I am and sophisticated as I am or whatever. And also I'm looking for parents. So, (laughs) and, but you never think you're looking for parents. Like you're looking for peers because if you were to say you're looking for parents, you would acknowledge that you were younger in one way or another. So there's like almost like a big delusion. I still don't think I'm looking for parents. I'm like, listen, I just want to fuck all these old guys. It's unrelated. Leave me alone. Yeah. I just want to fuck yeah. Alvin yeah. Molina like a yeah. normal person. Same. Hard same. It's not about anything. No. It only just struck me now that I was saying that all out loud that like I think that like the former feels so big and like the core thing that you're looking for to help in part delude you from the latter. And unfortunately, regardless if it's the former or the latter or both that you're looking for, often you'll get taken advantage of if you're the person who's always looking for someone who's older who will acknowledge you as being a grown up. Yeah. I mean, well, and that's like queerness in theory Uh and in practice, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's gay shit in a major way Mm -hmm. that kind of intergenerational learning and something that is Mm -hmm. like becoming more and more convoluted and more and more difficult to talk Mm -hmm. about in a way that doesn't scare people. And like, you know, I have a lot of complicated feelings about that, but that kind of intergenerational queer exchange is so essential and has like been so essential Mm -hmm. for forever and maybe it's changing now and this is like you know like I don't have kids likely will never have kids you know but maybe now with like the way queerness is represented in families and like gay parents like maybe it's different than it was and like I actually don't know if that's positive or negative but like it used to be that like the only way to like keep queer culture alive was that kind of intergenerational like support yeah whether those relationships were sexual or not like this gap of knowledge is actually what keeps the culture moving forward yeah is like an essential transference of information when i was a kid i had a handful of relationships with older people significant to the context of the age that i was at and a handful of them i'm like that was absolutely 
inappropriate and probably manipulative on some fronts. But there was one that I've had people challenge me and they're like, can you, do you feel like that that was like inappropriate to the point of, of like molestation or assault? And I get kind of up in arms about that because while I, at the age the partner was, would not have had uh, any relationship with someone of the age I was at that time, for me, it was about way more things than sex, right? It was about learning. It was about communing. It was about love. It was like about all of these things that like I didn't quite understand. And I get like really when when it comes up and people are like, you should call it this or it was this or you should be clear about your experience. I'm like, fuck mm -hmm. off, man. Like it was a very ambiguous experience from which mm -hmm. I learned a lot and I wouldn't advise people to learn if I wouldn't write a manual based on sort of like what I didn't be like everyone do these things but it was a place to, you know to the points that you're you're saying Woody it was like a pre-internet catch-up on learning a bunch of stuff that I certainly wasn't going to learn in my town. Yes. Because you didn't have Tumblr, so you got to get creative. There wasn't even Diaryland or LiveJournal yet. It was a very, <laughs> wow. it was a very preliminary time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to just read signs. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, this reminds me of like the problem with everyone being a content creator now or people having... I don't think the problem is a ton, a ton of people being content creators. I think the problem is the sort of expectations that that for some reason engenders. Because, for example, Alex, you and I were just talking about this. I feel like 15 years ago, if you saw a movie and you didn't really like it, you'd be like, well, I didn't really like it. And then you would like move on with your life. And now I feel like, like, for example, the discourse around Nope, like if people saw it and didn't really like it, they're like, I didn't really like it. Here's my essay on why I didn't really like it and why it's not <laughs> for me. And it's like, you don't really have to justify something being not for you. It just is. And I don't care what you think about Nope. <laughs> and, I didn't need you centered. <laughs> yeah. And like maybe people have always been like this, but I feel like people move through culture with the expectation that everything autobiographical that somebody says is a recommendation. Mm. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know that it has always been like this. I think the impulse has been there, but like, you know, to borrow from the greater zeitgeist of this show, like it was capitalism all along, right? Like now we've, we've incentivized <laughs> people to have hot takes and we've like right. created Twitter, which is, you know, the hot take industrial complex. <laughs> and so we've taught people that like, you know, you could get paid $200 a week or whatever the hell, like, you know, like a To not like, ad. nope. <laughs> to not like, nope. Yeah, to like judge somebody else's multi-year creative endeavor. Did you hate it? Get paid to tell somebody how much you hated it. And I just think that's so stupid. <laughs> like, Yeah. You know, it's funny too. I was thinking about this the other day, how like the default warning, at least when I was growing up, when millennials were growing up, I don't know what it is now, but I bet people still say this. It's like, oh, you better go to a good college or like go to college or get good grades or you'll be flipping burgers your whole mm. life. And I was like, you know, this is a funny thing to highlight because what do adult men love more than anything else? Flipping burgers. It's all they ever <laughs> talk about. It's like what they love most in the world. And yet it's like, I think because of that, that's why it's supposed to be demeaning because it's like you shouldn't have a job where you feed people and you enjoy doing something. You should do something meaningful like buying low and selling high. And then also the fact that like the burgers aren't the problem. It's the fact that, like, if you're getting a job where you're making burgers for somebody, you're probably, like, being treated as the man with the golden arm or whatever. And you're just, like, 
sweating and miserable and underpaid. As we learned from the starving artist, when what the second he got some money, mm-hmm. he promised a fancy meal. And what did he promise they do at the fancy meal? We they can abuse, abuse the waiter. The waiter. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? They're going to go to that S&M restaurant from Sex in the City. That's class, baby. <laughs> class warfare. Yeah. Oh, He's I like, we're suddenly, we're suddenly gone up the rank. <laughs> And I wish I could say that that was like an idea that died in 1996, but we all know that it hasn't. I mean, I went to art school so many times. I went to college too many times. And I still, (laughs) in my off season, have to take jobs where I'm scrubbing the shit out of floors of gay bars while somebody screams, don't let the sun go down on me at karaoke night. Like, (laughs) this is not a linear, this idea that like creating anything is like, cumulative or linear is like absolutely laughable and like not how it works and it's the difference between content and material you know and I think like Mm. you know to loop us back to our movie I think like this movie celebrates the process and not the outcome which is also a really interesting (sighs) choice right like it celebrates her act of gaining material where she's Mm. her note taking she's not publishing she's not trying to become a diarist she's trying to like (laughs) learn everything so that she can become a novelist and that's like something she says more than once in the film and i think that's really interesting that we watch her in process we don't watch her kind of creating her novel and even like the piece that she makes at the end is kind of like because she feels like she has to right it's like kind of like her retraction her tool for retraction and like the next phase of her portfolio yeah and she doesn't like catch the guy it's about watching her on a scale that's a hundred feet long, it's about watching her make like two inches of progress yeah. Yeah. <laughs> through through just sort of like engaging the process naturally and 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 to watch somebody do the thing that they love and how they process the world and how they perceive the world and like what they need in order to do that, and then just watch adults intervene and be like the way that you are doing it is inappropriate Mm. it was also very resonant to watch someone be like what am i doing wrong like i'm writing stuff down like you tell me to observe things i don't understand like i'm doing it and now i'm in trouble for it i don't get it yeah i mean i grew up in a house that celebrated work that was really like the only thing that my house loved and I, this movie is a treatise for like work for kids, right? It's like with like a little bit of when golly leaves, it's like depression 101, like how to be depressed as a preteen. But like the whole arc of the movie is really like meaningful work. And like they, it's mm. so overt in the text, like all of these quotes about like, she says herself, like it's not play, it's work. And I was that kind of kid. I was like constantly, you know, asserting that the things I was doing was like, this is important, not because it's like, childish but because like this is part of my larger like being this is part of my large like what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life you know like I was a kid who grew up performing in a ballet company was performing constantly and that's always been the case you know and that's always that's what I do now and that's always that's what I will do like not because I can't imagine another world but kind of yes because I can't imagine another world because I don't want one for myself right and like I don't feel like that's childish. I actually feel like that's like a just clarity of vision. And 
And I think Harriet personifies that in this way of like, no, this is what I'm going to do. And like, I'll get better at it over time. And that's a celebration. And like, you know, it's, and I think the pitfall is to make sure that that's not the only thing you do. And I think that's a lesson that Harriet learns, right. Is to be like, she says like her closing quote is um, the truth is important, but so are your friends. And if you can have both, it's a good life. Mm. She should have taught that to Truman Capote. (laughs) (laughs) That blood stays cold. Yeah. I mean, to that point, though, like the author, the author of the original book, like rolled with some like pretty significant writers and specifically children's writers Mm. who were like almost entirely gay, Mm. by the way, which I also love. Because who else gives a shit about children? (laughs) Who else would bother? Honestly, this idea that like do the work, just like do your work, man. And like I my mom, you know, is a nurse. She's still a nurse. She's been in the same hospital for like you know, 85, 90 years or whatever. Like she's, she's been in the same (laughs) hospital taking care of babies. She's a delivery nurse and she's been in the same Mm -hmm. hospital for like her entire professional career. And it's her greatest joy. She said overtly, you know, I have a bunch of siblings. She said to all of us, like, you know, if I could do it again, I wouldn't have kids. And I think that that is, I love hearing that. Like that doesn't freak me out in the least, actually. That makes me feel like, oh, all the times you ignored me or were incapable of parenting me when I was a child, mm. like that wasn't about me. Yeah. Right. And like she knows that and and knows that like mm. she had other, she had other fish to fry, like including like, you know, horrible chaos with my dad and just her own life or whatever. But even as a kid, like performing professionally, my parents had this perspective that like that's your job, that's your work. Like, I don't give a shit really you know like my parents would come to my shows but like not all of them and not all the time like they'd pick me up they'd drop me off and Mm. they'd be like you know and they often wouldn't even ask me how it was sometimes I'll look back and remember that my dad went to none of that shit like he didn't go to like any of the sports they made me go to he didn't go to the plays like he didn't he went to a play once maybe and and I think for a while like I took it personally and now in retrospect I'm glad that he was just like that's your job like you don't like come and watch me repair hmm. radiators. Yeah, like that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you're doing your thing. And right. I think that that's actually pretty fucking great. I love it. <laughs> I mean, and it set me up, right. It's made yeah. me, it's given me perspective as an adult to be like, Oh God, good. And like, you know, I get better and worse at work-life balance, but like even now, you know, like I'm a stripper, I'm a comedian and in both settings, idiots come up to you and are like, are you having fun? (laughs) And I'm like, who cares? (laughs) Who cares? Like maybe, but I'm not here. I have plenty of fun in my real life. You know what I mean? Like I'm not here to have fun. Who cares? Who cares? Strictly out of curiosity. How does one become a historian of gay porn? Mm, Lots of practice. (laughs) Um, You know, I was a, you know, to, to loop it back to, being a kid too. I was a horny kid. I was like a weird horny kid and, uh, you know, had like a deep love of porn when I was a kid and kind of has always held on to that. And this kind of bleeds into my other areas of interest, which is like, I am so, I, I love to treat seriously the things that other people don't think about at all or really undermine in general. Right. And I think in the bodies of work that I consume from both of you and celebrate in my ears every day. Like, I feel like both of you share maybe that sentimentality of like, actually the the richest things are the things that we like spend the least time looking at. As Rosie says in the movie, you know, there are as many ways to live as there are people in the world and each deserves a closer look. I haven't found a closer thing to a mission statement than that. That's right. Yeah. There's a thesis right there. 
And so, yeah, I just like always loved porn and it kind of bleeds into my work. It bleeds into my look. My stage shows kind of constantly reference vintage porn. And then last year, I, through like the gay grapevine, inherited one of the largest private collections of vintage porn in the country. Oh, amazing. Uh, And so now I'm like kind of in an archiving process and uh, caretaking process and figuring out how to share that work more broadly because I am like deeply convicted that it is like an important historical record that is very complicated and that is deserves a lot of like love and attention and celebration and so yeah that's kind of how it dovetails into my broader work as like a a a person who writes things and makes things so yeah now i'm like the now it's become my accidental life's work to have this like ten thousand piece collection in cold storage (laughs) like that i have to figure out what to do with you know wow that's probably bigger than the Vatican's. <laughs> their collection of porn. Of gay porn specifically. Well, I don't know. It might be the same. I've always heard that they had a giant porn collection. I don't know if that's... I mean, they, they probably do, though, right? They would. <laughs> Definitely. Do you want me to book us some tickets? No doubt. Yeah, yeah, let's go. Hit up Rome. Yeah, let's, let's go to Rome. Let's get some za, and then let's go oh my God. to the Vatican. Yeah, we can make a buddy travel movie about it. Yeah. Let's make a buddy travel movie slash national treasure in which we get the gay porn out of the Vatican. And it's called As- <laughs> Ass-anal Treasure. Ass-anal Treasure. <laughs> Ass-anal Treasure. Ass-anal Treasure. I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm the domain. I guess actually I have a theory I wanted to run by you because like notoriously Alfred Hitchcock referenced like butts and bathrooms and pooping a lot because that was his thing. Do we think that the term rear window is like a Hitchcockian <laughs> euphemism for the anus? Because I do. Yes. It all comes back to butts. <laughs> Listen, I think butts are the great unifier in a world of like chaotic sex and all these Aww. genders. I really think it all just comes back to like one of the almost undeniably shared human experiences is like having a butt and using it. Mm-hmm. That's so, yes. so true. And even if not sexually, you still like use it every day pretty much. Just using it. You're just using it. You know, it all comes back to butt stuff. It's the USB port on the human body. <laughs> oh, just the, the universal root. That's right. That's lovely. Yeah. Sarah, what, as a person who watched this movie as an adult and, and has mm-hmm. watched it as a child, what did you notice now maybe that you would not have noticed as a kid? Like what, what do you appreciate it about it being a piece of kids media that you Mm. maybe didn't catch the first time around? Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think I'd seen it since I was eight when I watched it for uh, today. And I think what I registered as a kid was just the sense of like, what a beautiful, like very aesthetically pleasing, just wonderful to be inside of movie that feels like it's treating kids with dignity. I remember it feeling like a super positive experience but like not being able to say why I didn't know that dignity was the thing that I needed in the adult world. <laughs> that's beautiful. And like now I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my God, that's incredible. So this movie has some fathers in it. It has uh, uh, Harriet's father is in it. It has sports father, sports fathers in it. We know that the popular girl's father is not in it. 
because he lives in another country and doesn't love her. That was a big, we haven't even talked about that. That really, that was one of the things I could have seen myself saying because I didn't understand Mm -hmm. how to untangle the brutality from the art of delivery. We know these things. Who, in your view, whoever wants to go first, who in your view is the daddy in this movie? Okay, I'll go first. Like the obvious choice is Golly, right? Because she comes in and can and she has that kind of authority that like you really do want in any kind of a parental figure or a safe adult where it's like she knows what her boundaries are. She knows what she's going to do. She knows what she's not going to do. And she's just going to be matter of fact about that. And there's something very secure feeling about that to me. But I also want to go a little off the wall and give a prize to Eartha Kitt because I realized while watching this movie that like when I first saw this as a kid, I really took her line to heart, which is like the secret of life is to go to bed and never get out again. <laughs> and like at the, even at the time, I was like, oh, she's on to something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was good that depression was personified in this movie, where she was just like, I'm hanging out, I'm talking on the phone. By a few different people. I'm not getting out of bed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then you you put on your hip vibrator and you get back in there. And then you go support local yeah. arts. I'm like, why is Eartha going to the school play? I don't hate it. Yeah. I just, she loves student art. And like, let that be a lesson. <laughs> I mean, yes, I think that Gully is the obvious daddy. I'm going to speak to that in a second. But just like I just want to say to Jay Smith Cameron, who's in this movie as Harriet's mom, that I really appreciate that she likes gross sandwiches. She likes stinky sandwiches. She like an old man. I like it. She was suggesting pastrami. She was suggesting olive cream cheese sandwiches. Uh This is one of my childhood staple sandwiches, by the way, was cream cheese and chopped olive. Olive cream cheese? Oh, yeah. These were mainstays oh. of Charlie Steed, my stinky old man food father. Oh, yeah? Yes, absolutely. Oh, wow, but wow. I Aww. I just like I, I increasingly I think this show has taught me so many things about myself along the way. And one of them is it's like r- truly deepened my appreciation for Rosie O'Donnell. Like I, mm. I this is a person <laughs> who in many ways kind of felt sticky and I didn't fully understand what was going on at the moment, but something was speaking to me about it. And now I'm realizing that like for a full ass decade, this was a person who was like, I'm here. Can do anything. I'm here. And also like, here's, here's some things you should consider in a way that I, it seems like it was very helpful to a lot of people under the guises of a lot of characters and a lot of movies and a lot of appearances. So I, this is a person I appreciate very much. Do you think there's anyone in the country that hasn't seen your bosoms yet? <laughs> yeah, I, appre- <laughs> I appreciate Rosie in a bigger way. And every time we cover a, a Rosie movie, I appreciate her more. Uh, Woody, have have you arrived uh, uh, on your daddy? Yeah, again, I have to like not do the interesting thing and say that it's golly. I think that like that's just it's it's too right. It's just science. It's just science. So that's that's what my Christian school taught me. Science was. <laughs> uh, but no, I do want to give an honorable mention though to sport as daddy in yeah. training as junior daddy because he really is like a parentified child as you said earlier Sarah but I think sport is like a person I see a lot of myself in that sense of like having to run your household mm-hmm. having to take care of your parent you know like and even like not just in labor but in joy you know one of my favorite moments of the film is when um Harriet like 
unexplainedly like builds a tower and <laughs> hangs outside of sports house and like for no reason other than i think to just prove that she could which i think is really cool but like she gets to yeah she gets to look in on this moment of like tenderness and joy between sport and mr sport and <laughs> i think that that's such a beautiful moment of like I did a lot of that as a kid, you know, like trying to bring joy to my like very complicated mom. And I just, I, I always, I saw that as a kid and, and it resonated. And I see that now is like this like caretaker figure who's also like in it for the good times too, you know, and not just trying to buy the milk and the bread and the cheese, but like also like trying to make his dad laugh. And like in that process, like just make them survive until dad can do it, you know? And like, and he does eventually, you know? And so I just think sports, a sports, a yeah. daddy junior. He is. It's worth just a super quick mention that like my new because they have re- clearly recorded 5000 episodes. I now every time we're doing a movie, I look up to see if the Bechdel cast has already done the movie and I listen to their genius conversation about it. And they have covered this movie. Vanessa Lee Chester, who plays Janie, they talked to her briefly in that episode and her report of how this was for kid actors was a glowing review across the board including her her enduring friendship with gregory smith who played Mm. sport well and like yeah not that we need more reasons but like yet another reason we need more women directors in hollywood right like bronwyn hughes is like a director taking like i have to assume that she was part of that process of like creating a space in which like people were taken care of and specifically kids Yes. Yeah. What do you, how do people find you? Thank you. This has been a blessing. How do people find you yeah. if they want to engage you more? You know, I don't know if I want them to find me, but they, but I do. I do. <laughs> I do. You know, I am a, a live performer first and foremost. And sometimes people get rankled by that to be like, why, why don't you make more content that I can watch from home? And like, uh, I, I, I don't want to is the short answer. Yeah. Um, Cause then they'll do a YouTube video about how it wasn't for them and make $200. Correct. Correct. <laughs> As a person who's already gone mega vi on the YouTube, I don't need to do that anymore. But if there are producers listening, I will uh, consider your project. But uh, I, I, um, on the internet, I have a mo- nominal presence on Twitter and Instagram. It's my name, Woody Sticks. Uh, and very soon I'll make announcements about kind of the, the porn project and how I really want like the world to engage with it. But the, sh- the shorter answer is like, if you're a person with a theater, please um, book one of my shows and I'll come to you and facilitate some gay nonsense in a theater near you. Amazing. This is fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been the best. Such a pleasure. This has been the best, like the actual best. Like I have never (laughs) had a better time in a parking lot and I've had some pretty good times in parking lots. That is saying something based on what I know about your parking lot engagement. I am tickled. And in it, and in a very sincere way, like I'll talk, I'll talk gay shit anytime. I'll talk about anything, but uh, gay movies all day, every day. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Woody Sticks for being here and for just being a fabulous guest. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode, making it sound so nice. If we're uh, if we're gonna see you at the You're Wrong About Live events, you'll see Carolyn on stage singing some songs. We are very excited for that and we hope to see you there. Uh, and if not, at uh, these events, maybe some in the in the near future. This episode was edited by the just excellent, most wonderful Miranda Zickler. 
Beats were provided by Fresh Lesh. Thank you so much, Lesh, for making our transitions sound so great. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. Please reach out and say hello. You can send us messages via our website, which is linked in the various places where you find our links. You can find us on Patreon. You can find us on Apple Plus and support the show and get bonus episodes by way of supporting the show. And I think that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good. You, my friend, are good. I am glad that you are here. Thanks for helping make this whole thing possible.